Hello and welcome to episode 187 of the Water's Way Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Wei Shen, and Tony is back. Hey, Tony. Back. How's it going? Good. It's been a while. Well, it's just, what, two weeks, right? Yeah, yeah, I miss you. <laughs> I, I know, I miss you too. <laughs> <laughs> so today, um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about like the what's going on in the world with the coronavirus. Um, but before we get into that, uh, you have some guests on this week, right? Tell us a bit about yeah. that. Yeah, no, I had a, a good little conversation um, with two folks from Digital Assets. Uh, Dan O'Prey, who's their chief marketing officer, but you know, in, in his role, like he's the co-founder of Hyperledger. Uh, he really knows his stuff around the blockchain and digital asset space. Um, has been hands-on in this for a very, very long time. And uh, Kelly Matheson, uh, who's head of enterprise solutions for digital assets. And Kelly, uh, before she moved to digital asset about four years ago, I want to say, she'd spent like 25, 26 years at JP Morgan. And she'd spent a couple years at Goldman Sachs before that. So, you know, she has a ton of experience. And so, you know, anybody who's listening to the podcast knows that, you know, we have a lot of discussions about what's real in the blockchain space, what's hype, you know, what's the way forward, where were the mistakes made, those kind of things. And so, you know, that's what Dan and Kelly and I talked with. So I thought it was a really good conversation. Um, and then we, at, the, at the end, we talk a little bit about business continuity and stuff like that. But definitely worth a listen. I hope you all uh, check it out. Okay. Yeah, before we before we jump into that, so let's... Um... Yeah, how are, how are you handling things with uh, the situation right now? Yeah, so in New York and London, we technically have this kind of A, B, A team, B team structure going on where half of a staff comes in on, you know, two days, half of a staff comes in on two day on the other two days. Friday is, I think, off or everybody, and I don't know. Um, with our team, everybody's just working remotely. A journalist just needs internet access. Yeah. Um, a phone and and um, and email, you know, so it's 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 we don't you know, actually, I prefer when my reporters are out actually talking to people. They don't necessarily need to be in the office, um, but it's uh, a lot of people are, uh, you know, it, it's it's a big change from it. it it's a little bit. It's an anxious time um, mm -hmm. for many different reasons, whether it's fear of spreading the coronavirus, whether it's. You know what kind? What's the economy going to be like in a couple of years? How long is it going to last? Things like that. But for me, Wei Shen, uh, uh, you know, adversity brings a chance for opportunity. And you know, I I, I want to be an agent of change. You know, and you know, bring some positivity. Um, there's not much that we can control in the situation, and all we can do is do our jobs, do our jobs really well, and. You know, for us, try and give good content to our subscribers. Um, we can't really control the economy. We can't control, you know, the spread. You know, we could just do little things on our own on that front. But, you know, I, I think about the show, The Newsroom. Um, I'm an Aaron Sorkin lover. And one of the characters, Will McAvoy, you know, he's on a mission to civilize. And Wei Shen, that's what I'm on. And so I'm doing three things to not only am I going to embrace this challenge and, you know, try and produce even better content than we were doing before, but three things I'm trying to do to improve myself during this time since I'm stuck inside. You know, people know that I like to go out, have a drink uh, a couple times a week, maybe a lot of times a week. And uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so me, I'm, I'm not, I'm having no more than one or two, uh, you know, beers in a day. Um, and, you know, at least 
uh, four days a week, no beer, um, which for some people, that's not a big deal. For me, this is a challenge, um, but it's being trapped inside. It makes it a little bit easier. Um, I've deleted uh, Twitter and Facebook off of my phone and I deleted tabs off of my browser. So if I want to go onto Twitter to post things about what we're doing, I have to you know, type in, you know, twitter.com and post it. And then I'm just leaving immediately. And I turned off any kind of news alerts. I go check out, you know, the New York times and uh, the wall street journal in the morning. And then I check out, you know, the technology uh, sites that I always check out, but they're not, you know, it's, I'm just getting myself away from doom and gloom. And the third thing is, um, you know, I've downloaded the New York Times crossword puzzle. I've always thought I was bad at crossword puzzles. I am, but you know, I'm trying to get better. Um, Alice, who's you know in Manila, uh, she she left you, and she knew that this was going to happen. But she was planning on being out of Manila for a while, uh, for at least six months, um, no matter what, uh, to do, to do some stuff with her family. Um, but so me and her are playing Scrabble, uh, and she always her family, her mother kicks my ass at Scrabble all the time, and then kind of rubs it in my face. It's really messed up, if you ask me. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I downloaded a chess game. Um, I used to love playing chess. Uh, I, I God, I haven't played chess in so long, so I was like, you know what? Let me let me get better at this again. And you know, because when I had Twitter on my phone and there was just some downtime, and we've talked about sport, but I would pick up my phone and play. If it's choice between Twitter or chess, I'm gonna go with chess. So, or I'm sorry, I'm going to go with Twitter. So if Twitter's not on my phone, you know, I, I'm doing these things to kind of stimulate my brain and to get my brain away from those anxious things. And I'm telling you, it's only been a couple of days, but it has really, really helped my mental outlook. You know, I mean, you know, it, it's easy to fall into a dark place during these dark times. Um, yeah. You know, so th those are the suggestions I make. How about you? Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of you, first of all, let me say that, um, that you've been you. trying to cut down your drinking. That's amazing. And I know it's something that's really hard to do because um, not not that I drink as much as you do, but it's easy not to many just, people do. <laughs> it's easy to just like, um, like, oh, I feel like I need a drink or um, I, I, I really want to open that bottle of wine. And then you, know, you finish, you find that you finish like, Okay, when I say you, I mean me. Like I finish half a bottle, and I'm like, "There's only half left." Okay, I, I think I can I can finish it tonight, and um, yeah, and the next day is not very great. Um, so for me, it is keeping active, uh, making sure I keep healthy, um, and that that has really helped with um, just the mental state of like that. This is not all doom and gloom. So if I feel better um, health-wise, or my body feels great from, even though with all the muscle aches that I get, but it feels it feels great that I'm actually trying to improve on and work on my body. Um, that that helps my mental state as well. Um, yeah. Other than that, trying to encourage friends who are feeling uh, a little less positive on the outlook, but also looking at you know the implications of what this um, coronavirus could have on the economy and on uh, different aspects of everyone's lives, businesses and things like that. You know, um, these are serious issues that we need to talk about. Yes, but it's is it the end of the world? Um, not not quite yet. <laughs> it's just, so, yeah, exactly. Everybody's talking yeah. about twenty four seven. Like we have to talk about these things. These are important things to talk about, and we're going to be writing about these kind of implications. But it doesn't have to be every minute of every day. Yeah, yeah. And you you said something really interesting earlier when we were chatting a bit earlier about the 
um, improvise, adapt, and overcome. So this is uh, something that your your father has talked about uh, to you like your whole life, right? <laughs> yes, he's a marine, yeah. so yeah, it's, that's what I grew up on. And I believe that this is things. This is this is um, you know lessons that we can learn um, and and try to um, I guess adapt. No, <laughs> sorry try to implement this kind of mindset into our daily lives what in whatever it is whatever adversity that we face whether it is external and something that we can't control like um covid-19 or something that has actually happened to us like um maybe emotionally or physically or whatever you know we improvise we adapt and we will overcome and yeah that's how we improve on ourselves let me ask you before we cut out yeah because we, we want to yeah. people um <laughs> Any, because you love going to CrossFit gyms and stuff like that. Any, any uh, tips for working out from home? Oh yes, if you want, I can actually send you some some uh, good. You know, we'll talk about that next week. Maybe next <laughs> week when we don't have a guest, then we'll we'll actually get we can actually get into it because some people might act. Because me, I'm just kind of doing some push-ups, trying to do some sit-ups, you know. But I'm actually losing weight just because I'm not drinking as much. So at least there's that positive. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll talk about home workouts next week then. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, without further ado, let's just jump straight in and um, hope you enjoy this week's podcast. See you next week. See ya. Okay, now we are joined by Dan O'Prey and Kelly Matheson of Digital Asset. Uh, Dan and Kelly, thanks so much for joining. Thank you thanks so much. Thanks for having us, Tony. Delighted uh, to be here. Great, great. You know, so obviously, as is true across the industry, we're all working from home. Norm, we, we had this kind of ske- we scheduled this about a month or so ago, and it was plans to do it in the studio. Um, but you know, I appreciate you guys taking the time out uh, to talk with us and talk with our audience. Maybe just to start off with, give a quick little background about uh, your roles at uh, Digital Asset. Kelly, let me start with you. Sure, and thank you again. Really delighted to do this and get a chance to connect with your uh, your audience. Um, so Kelly Matheson, I am the Chief Client Experience Officer at Digital Asset, which means that I that is working with enterprise clients across industries around the globe um, to enable our products uh, for their solutions. Okay, and Dan. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having us. Uh, Dan O'Prey, I'm the Chief Marketing Officer and uh, I lead the strategy team here at Digital Asset. I've uh, been in the industry for about six years or so now, uh, full-time. I uh, previously started a, started a company called Hyperledger, uh, which is distinct from the now uh, Linux Foundation uh, open source organization called Hyperledger. Um, and so I've been covering all things uh, in the market and uh, sort of strategically for DI. Okay. And... The place I always like to talk, start off with when talking about blockchain, anybody who's listened to, you know, so we've been doing this for three, four years now, and we've talked a lot about blockchain. We've had guests on that talk blockchain. Um, I have always been a little bit of a skeptic, uh, quite frankly, when it comes to the topic of blockchain. And that's because, you know, being in the industry when this first kind of started to be rolled out throughout the industry, the amount of hype and you know, over-promising and all that, you know, you kind of saw that in the beginning and now we're here, you know, several years later and, you know, those grand promises in the beginning have yet to come to fruition. So the one thing I would like to start off with is just this idea around as it stands today in 2020, what, 
when we're talking about blockchain technology, what is real versus what is hype for you guys? I know it's a broad question, but I think it's a good way to kind of start so people understand where you guys are coming from when you're talking about blockchain versus maybe some of the other uh, uh, vendors out there that, you know, kind of like, like are still kind of uh, promising big things. Sure, I can, uh, I can start with that one and then Kelly to add. Sure, yeah, um, and after. So, so Tony, I think you know, definitely a, a healthy skepticism is, is very much needed in the, the, the sort of larger blockchain space. Um, it's quite hard actually just to talk about the blockchain space because there are several different components of it, some of which are, are slightly related and some you know, have, have nothing to do with each other. Um, so, for example, the, the space that we're in primarily deals with the sort of what's known as that enterprise blockchain or permission blockchain that's, that's working with uh, you know, real uh, commercial companies today that are actually doing something with you know, typically with traditional assets. Some are exploring new assets, but some are traditional. Uh, and then obviously there's the much larger uh, or m more distinct uh, crypto industry um, with the currencies and the, the token uh, asset issuances over there. So. Um, but generally, generally speaking, you know, this industry as a whole has has had a massive amount of hype, uh, particularly in the early days. Um, you know, fairly typical for a kind of you know, fundamentally new technology uh, that is in its very nascent stages. Um, people sort of imagine all the different possibilities and the potential and how the world, you know, could be if we were sort of rebuilding it from scratch today. Um, but then you've also got the pragmatic, practical realities of of how do we actually incrementally or, or some materially um, move things forward from where they are today uh, without without having to sort of you know, tear up all of the lessons learned and uh, all of the reasons that some of the systems are are there today. Um, so in terms of sort of trying to cut through that, it, it is incredibly difficult, uh, especially for a sort of casual observer uh, following the the media around this space, the coverage, the uh, large amounts of you know, prominent marketing that is going on. Um, but really what I try to focus on is, is really you know, narrowing in on what are the particular business problems that are being solved. Uh, it's one thing to talk about, okay, we could do this or we could do that or this, you know, in the future this will happen. Um, but what are the more immediate short to middle term business problems that exist today uh, are actually being solved with this technology and actually forget the technology for a, for a minute. Just say, you know, what is the business problem and then see if the, uh, the technology can be a good fit for that. So generally speaking, in terms of trying to you know, identify that signal, um, I think looking at projects where they're actually replacing existing systems, you know, where they have a material business already running uh, on some traditional uh, technology that they're actually decommissioning and replacing with a blockchain you know, distributed ledger based uh, system is always a, a very strong signal that this is a, a real use case. This is a, a meaningful project that's been taken very seriously. Um, versus you know, the many sort of POCs or exploratory projects. Not that there's anything wrong with those, and those are completely necessary as well. Um, but it's much easier to, to sort of you know, play up or get over, overexcited about a, a potential project than something where you're actually you know, replacing uh, existing infrastructure. And you know, maybe, maybe Kelly, maybe just to build sure. off something that Dan was talking about, but this idea of the importance of, because that's one thing that I think that happened very early was, you know, that whole hammer looking for a nail. Yeah. Um, and that's where it led to a lot of disillusionment, especially at uh, some of the bigger banks and, you know, and larger asset managers. Um, 
you know, as we kind of talk about that idea of being targeted and focused on a specific problem rather than saying, what is your problem? Let's see if blockchain can do it rather than, or maybe, or maybe that is, the, maybe that is the question that you kind of say, this is a problem. Then you have to have an honest discussion about whether or not blockchain can solve that. How does that maybe work that conversation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, uh, I was going to build a little bit on the, the point you said that, that Dan had made where he used the word business case. And I think mm -hmm. that although we're in the early part of 2020, I think we're already starting to see a few important differences or important themes emerge around practically how this technology is being used um, versus, I think, what would probably be more described as the opportunity to learn and understand over the last few years. So. For me, I, I, we see sort of three themes emerging. I'll, I'll, I'll be I'll be brief about them and go into any others in more detail. But the first is that um, you see, particularly for enterprises, you mentioned banks, but broker dealers, financial market institutions, uh, custodians, asset managers, and the like, when they're now discussing the the opportunities to use this technology, they're they're doing it in the context of planning for the planning for production. And what I don't mean there is that they're they're not taking the time to learn and understand this technology. But I think the past few years are marked by refinable for different contexts. Like in the case of the highly regulated markets, uh, financial services that define much of of your audience, but also to say the healthcare space or supply chain rules here in the U.S. I think we're now at the point where in the next few years we're starting now to see these enterprise-grade production solutions be defined that way. And to Dan's point, not necessarily is technology where you start that conversation. You start it with the business case on what you're trying to change, either in replacing something, improving on existing functionality and workflows that you either have yourselves or you have with your clients or your counterparts. Uh, you want to create a new product and service that um, the uh, the challenges of existing technology and operations make uh, make impossible. So we're we're seeing a a, a much uh, I don't know maybe a little bit of a return to normalcy and away from the hype of this is a technology. It's just a technology, but it's a good one. But you know what's the business case that it's grounded in, and to think about how it'll actually be implemented rather than I just want some snazzy uh, demo to be able to show from a P. Sure. We're um, seeing is oh sorry go ahead no no sorry sorry you, you cut out there yeah. just a little bit so we're you, you we're using a a uh, just to let the audience know like I said we're doing this all remotely so there might be some times that there might be some cutout we'll we'll definitely try and work through that but sorry go go on you still oh, have a I'm bit more yeah there. I'm sorry it might be might be Wi-Fi overload in, worry, in my building worry. um the second thing we're seeing is more frequent regulatory environment uh, I think and that and I mean that not simply applied to financial services but to other highly regulated industries uh, like healthcare. Um, um, how telecommunications are delivered. It seems that increasingly regulators understand, certainly in the case of financial services, that the institutions that want to embrace this technology are in an um, operating environment, a constrained environment with increased regulatory pressure, compressed revenues. And so I think there's a more emerging understanding that this technology can aid those challenges while allowing the institutions to comply with regulators. And I think for any of us, I you know, didn't mention at the beginning, my background before DA is uh, nearly 30 years in the financial services space, um, uh, almost all of them at J.P. Morgan, where you know complying with regulatory requirements is not an easy challenge, but but maybe this technology. And the third thing we're seeing is that the de um, uh, the development is getting down to the hands of the developers, and that doesn't mean that I don't think that the the business folks and the 
uh, uh, groups and institutions that are creating new products and defining their standards. But the reality is, is that development will increase in all forms of scale and size across financial services and other industries, mostly because it's getting in the, it's actively getting in the hands of the, the developers, those that are actually going to build and create those solutions. So it's a bit of a, a bookend in the sense that you're focusing more on the creation of the business case and now down to the practical use of these technologies from the people that are, are creating the solutions directly. Okay. And um, Dan, let me ask you this then. So since, you know, as these projects have been rolled out, obviously um, there, there have been very, there have been a lot of use case, uh, good use cases uh, seen throughout, in, whether in supply chain management, healthcare, as you guys have been talking about. Um, and there have been some use cases in the capital markets already through kind of trade finance, certain kind of settlements, um, certain internal structures. Um, but it would seem to me, and feel free to correct me if you think I'm wrong, but one of the things that I, because I'm not an expert, I just kind of parrot what other people say. But one of the things I have heard a lot is that the in the capital market specifically, so take away the kind of the retail banking world, in mm -hmm. the capital market specifically, you know, it, it seems like the definition of, of a blockchain or maybe the components of a blockchain are different today because of needs by the financial services, whether regulatory needs or else then sometimes because there's so much pushback and, and everybody says that they want to work together and share and do this. But then in the financial markets, when push really comes to shove, that's not always the case. So when we talk about capital markets blockchain, what is different today from those kind of blockchains that maybe that had to evolve from those kind of five years ago um, definitions of blockchain? Yeah, I mean that's a, a that's a great question, and I'll defer to Kelly on, on you know to elaborate on uh, with her uh, vastly superior capital markets expertise than myself, but I can talk to that a little bit. Um, so. So really, you know, within the capital market space, um, the, the vast majority of the focus, nearly all the focus, I would say, is on what's known as permissioned blockchains. Um, this is as opposed to the uh, so-called sort of permissionless blockchains, which tend to be more in the, the cryptocurrency space. Um, and there's you know, multiple different reasons for that. And that's not to say, you know, one design is better than another. It's just they're optimizing for, for very different solutions. Um, one is optimizing for, for sort of censorship resistance, peer-to-peer -peer transactions, cutting out intermediaries, uh, and really being sort of unstoppable even even by government levels. Uh, and the other one is dealing in you know, the practical realities of regulation, of needing to know your customer, needing to know who you're dealing with. Um, and so they have very different uh, implications at the sort of the technology architectural uh, level. Um, so most of the the What's being explored uh, are permissioned blockchains. Um, some well-known ones of these are Hyperledger Fabric, uh, Corda, uh, VMware blockchain. Uh, and then there are a few uh, Ethereum variants, which is also a, a big public blockchain. Um, but the really the focus there is on how do we, as multiple different entities, departments, um, you know, whatever it may be, multiple different sort of yeah, legal entities uh, coordinate agreements that span across us uh, efficiently, you know, as quickly as, as needed, um, as securely as possible without, and this is, you know, the big key piece, um, without uh, A, dealing with any anonymous parties, 
uh, or relying on anyone uh, unknown, uh, but more importantly as well, um, without sharing any form of information with anyone that doesn't have a, have a right to know. Uh, and that's where, uh, particularly in, in highly regulated markets such as capital markets, um, the permission blockchain and the sharing of the, how the data is actually distributed um, is, is really the sort of key piece in these, these architectural designs um, of blockchains that are, you know, uh, are going into production in, in this market. Okay, and then uh, to to what Dan was saying, sure. uh, Kelly, you have you know twenty five years at J P Morgan, two three years at Goldman Sachs, so, and you joined uh, just looking here, but I think it was uh, about four years ago. Yeah. yeah, four years ago. Um, so, so it adds you were, up to you were there on the other side of this. You you were there at J P Morgan when this kind of was first kind of rolling out uh, before yeah. jumping over here. So for for from your perspective, same question. You know how has that definition kind of changed uh, for the capital markets? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I'll tell you honestly. Like I remember at the time when I was making the decision to to make a change, and obviously I'd grown up in my career in all in one space. Um, you know, I remember. Uh, uh, having the opportunity to work in businesses at J.P. Morgan that were going to be or have the opportunity to be critically and and really forever transformed by by using this type of t technology. And at the time, I, I wasn't thinking it um, as, uh, oh, good news, we no longer will need any of the custodians or the collateral agents or securities lending agents or any of more fiduciary-like roles that are in the, the capital markets um, uh, services. It, for me then, and I think this is what we're seeing play out in some of the use cases or business cases that are actually uh, public and going to production, it's it's more about um, a streamlining or uh, uh, streamlining the workflows or improving the STP. I see for many organizations in the capital market space, the ability for them to control the operating expense and to achieve high straight through process rates is, is largely defined by the boundaries of their own systems, their own technology. Even within a large corporation, it means it's literally the bounds of your own business. It doesn't necessarily cross over into some of the partner organizations you're working with. Or if you're, um, say for a case for uh, UBS, which is publicly known or announced to be uh, uh, using using our products, but they're their use case, they've openly described it as the opportunity to extend their workflow through to their intermediaries and, and underlying end user clients for their equity derivatives and structured product workflow. So I think the difference is, is that it's not about uh, these functions or, um, or, or removing those fiduciary roles. The underlying beneficial owners and the end user clients still want agents to be able to do that. But what it is, is it's about still having that trusted network, but beginning to liberate the data, if you will, a little bit. So, so to reduce the operating costs and risks so that I can now share a workflow with you if you're my provider. And therefore, I don't have to have redundant or duplicative operating systems and the cost and the risk that goes along with that. I don't need to unnecessarily use balance sheet to be able to deliver services in a highly manual operating uh, capacity because I'm worried about the operating risk associated with it. So it begins to lower the cost of, of being able to run and deliver these products that benefits the clients as well. But it gets the data out of the out of whatever system is being run or product is being delivered or service provided. It gets the data out and makes that data a little bit boundless. It's it, it has the opportunity now moved in a control and owned way across the provider to an agent to ultimately the end beneficiary client. For anybody in 
people who are listening to us, for anybody who's been in this space of the capital markets and some of the security services that go along with it, the chance to, to capitalize and monetize that data to to, to to free it to be used in and of a, a, a product and a service itself, that's frankly been a bit of the holy grail for probably all the 30 or 40 years that I've been working. And you see so many use cases now around the globe that are, are taking different avenues at that, but act, that's ultimately the core, to be able to break down those workflows, improve the operations from a cost and a risk perspective, and get the data out in a more real-time and controlled way. Okay. And I, next, I w I'm going to want to talk about smart contracts and uh, the DAML programming language. But just before we get to that, just quickly for both of you, if you had to pick one or two things where the industry went wrong, again, specific to capital markets, um, with kind of the rollout and maybe the the communication of blockchain networks. Kelly, I'll start with you and then I'll go over to Dan. You know, what for you, obviously, this is such a, a young industry, um, the, the capital market space, and there are going to be mistakes made. For you, where do you think, looking back retrospectively, that you think that we could have done better as an industry communicating some of the issues that we're going to be faced, or we could have done a better job on our end of being more flexible to what capital markets firms need. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that I was thinking two things as you asked the question, but I probably roll them up in, into one. I think, you know, rightly or wrongly, um, the, the interest and the eagerness to understand this technology somehow for a good number of years shifted the focus to be, not about the new product or service I want to create or how do I operationally prove something. I'm going to come back to this term, not about the business case. And it became led with, like, first, what's your infrastructure decision? And, you know, I had the opportunity to lead a couple of businesses at, at J.P. Morgan before I left. And, I, I, you know, I can tell you the first thing for the initiatives that I led there that we experience with a number of our clients right now isn't first tell me what infrastructure I'm going to choose. It's more about which clients am I trying to reach, which regulatory hurdle am I trying to overcome, which trying to get a, a, an opportunity up on. It's the, it's, it's the thing that I produce as a, as a business owner and how do I actually make that better. So it got a little backwards for a while. And I think there, it's, it was come from the, the eagerness of people wanting to learn and understand a technology that had great promise in great detail, but it got a little backwards for a while and I think derailed some of the conversations very early on to be who's got a node and how many nodes there will be versus what would actually be on that node and, and why would one want one. So I just think it got backwards for a while and I think fortunately now it's kind of shaken itself out to be at the right place. Okay, and uh, Dan, for you, same question. Yeah, I was going to say something uh, quite similar to Kelly, um, but yeah, to sort of elaborate on that, um, you know, really, as this space sort of came out of the, the public blockchain space, the cryptocurrency space, and became so hyped, uh, there seemed to be a lot of sort of impetus, you know, from, from the sea level to do something with blockchain. Uh, and so there are a lot of sort of companies, you know, looking to start projects um, and just really, as Kelly said, to sort of learn and explore, which is which is very valuable to get your actual hands hands wet. Um, but it did lead to to certain sort of opening questions, as Kelly was was alluding to, on you know, what's your consensus protocol? Um, do you use zero knowledge proofs? Um, and you know, in, in not many areas of business, uh, would you start with you know even traditional non blockchain technology um, projects? You'd start with talking about specifics of a database or uh, middleware. 
Um, and so it, it very much did, uh, as Kelly said, become become quite an upside down conversation as people try to to understand it better, uh, and also try to determine what is and isn't relevant uh, given the you know the fire hose of information they were getting from multiple different angles of, of multiple different projects, all, all going in different directions. So. Um, to say it's a mistake it was probably would be an overstatement, but you know it's just a natural uh, course of the the early stages of of a new technology. Okay, fair enough. And I'll leave it up to decide who wants to talk about what here. But the the other thing that we obviously want to hit on here is this idea around smart contracts and um, and then also how the uh, Daml uh, programming language plays into this space. Um, Maybe just start, you know, what are smart contracts for our audience members that maybe aren't as familiar? And then what is uh, DAML? Sure. Dan, I'll first start? start with that. Yeah, yeah please. Sure, no problem. So, um, so for, for your audience, I think if you if you think about blockchains basically being as the, uh, being the data, right? It's how the data is stored and where the data is stored. So that is, that is the state of the world, the truth that, that you're sort of relying on for any of your, uh, your processes. Um, you can think about smart contracts essentially as kind of the, you know, the, the filter for that. Um, it's, it's controlling how that data is changed, how the truth gets updated, um, how positions and, and steps in your life cycle are, are determined and, and what should happen next. Smart contracts are really that you know, what keeps that 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 data accurate. Um, so it focuses on you know obviously how do we change that data, but more specifically over uh, who can do what uh, under which circumstances, who's agreed to do what, who must do what if they're obliged uh, to do a certain uh, action, um, and it really manages how how that data, that single shared uh, source of truth, uh, is updated over time. So really the the quality of the data that is in, you know, stored in your blockchain is is only as good as uh, you know the smart contract capability of ensuring that it is accurate. Uh, otherwise, you have the sort of so-called garbage in, garbage out kind of problem. Uh, so, smart contracts generally is a is a is a fancy, uh, slightly misnomer term for uh, you know, but a far less interesting sounding sort of multi-party uh, agreements uh, where you have you know a, a codified um you know written down in code uh version of any form of agreement or, or process uh between different entities that can then be automated and enforced uh digitally uh, to ensure that you know the state of what everyone's seeing or, or at least their subsection of what they should be seeing um, matches the the corresponding counterparties uh, subsection for what they're seeing so it's a it's kind of like a master services agreement for um, digital contracts. Okay. And then uh, Kelly, want to take the other end of the coin, just explain a little bit about the programming language. Yeah, um, what we're seeing, and I might just do it more from the, the client perspective, because I think that's more useful than sort of hearing about it from uh, from from our Sure. Uh, our side of it. Um, what we're seeing clients uh, use the um, use demo for or use a, the the programming language for is a couple of things. One, it enables them to create, and I'm going to go now back to um, uh, I'm going to call it a proof of value rather than a proof of concept or a prototype. 
um, just simply to separate it from what was going on sort of years ago. But it allows them to create really meaningful, um, indicative uh, minimum viable products or minimum viable demos, not just simply for the purpose of getting uh, educated on the, the product itself, which, which of course is, is important to understand, but so that they can walk through how a smart contract um, approach can change a workflow or can change a process within their own organization. Many of them are actually using them as part of um, interactions with their clients. And then, as I mentioned earlier, with uh, increasing interaction with, with regulators. So I think what what this, what this Dan has described enables someone to do is to, to define that workflow that involves the multi-party participants themselves, but they can be involved much earlier in the process um, through the form of, a, of a, an interactive tool or a proof of value or a demo. Um, and then increasingly, it's about getting it into the hands, as I said, of the developers so that they can design and, and build. And, and what we find there is that it's a focus on uh, the ability of a technology like this, particularly demo, if I might say it, but a technology like this to uh, increase developer productivity. So said differently, you can, you can have your developers able to produce more product that is uh, able to be tested live against its business goals, its revenue goals, its new market goals, whatever it may be, uh, in a much more rapid prototyping, rapid developing, rapid delivery, rapid evaluation, that repeatedly. So I think this is a technology, at least that I haven't come across prior in, in, um, in my career, that enables uh, a much more iterative process to, uh, and a much lower cost process or lower risk process to be able to prove out whether um, something we're trying to accomplish from a business sense works. And I think that's what's different about smart contract technology and, you know, frankly, ours in particular. Okay. And then, obviously, it it's become a lot more difficult to kind of predict the future uh, with everything that's happening with the coronavirus, all the kind of shutdowns, everybody kicking in their uh, business continuity um, uh, plans. But, and we'll talk a little bit about that at the, at the very end here, but if we if we look at the trends in the market, if we look at trends in either the blockchain, maybe maybe one person can take the trends in the blockchain space, and another one can take a look at the trends in the smart contract space. What are we going? What what should listeners that care about the space be looking the most for? What what are going to be some of the indicators that advancements are being made and that progress is being made as we head into 2020 and 2021, with the understanding that predicting anything right now is going to be it's it's uh it's it's a little bit uncertain well but dan can sure. decide which way he wants to go but definitely getting to production is going to be the the best measure of all um dan which one do you want to go with first i mean i'd say it's, it's kind of hard to sort of separate those to two break them, yeah, the, yeah. Okay, fair enough. yeah i'm sorry how about this each of you can pick uh the major trend and uh, we sure. go there. sorry okay <laughs> no. Yeah, they're, they're obviously uh, sort of yeah, sort of two sides of the, the same coin. So um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the the major trends that we've been we've been seeing and and we've been sort of you know internally optimizing for um, that are, are you know, high high degree of confidence will continue is kind of the the componentization uh, of the technology, uh, and by that I mean in the early days it very much was kind of monolithic. You know, you you could choose A, B, or C, uh, and Whichever one you chose meant you have to choose you know, all the different properties that come with it. It was kind of a uh, take everything or leave everything uh, kind of approach. Um, now, as, as technology matures, you start to see sort of layers emerging um, uh, and, and interfaces being defined between those layers. 
Um, and that enables companies uh, like ourselves and like others uh, to really focus on, on a particular piece of the stack uh, that they do best, that they see you know, the most value in, uh, where their skill sets uh, fit the best, and then you know, move out of uh, and partner with companies in, in other parts of the stack where, where their strengths may be uh, larger than uh, theirs. Um, so the result of this is, you, you know, A, the clients get more flexibility and more choice over, uh, okay, I need these properties for this business case, so I'm going to use you know, that ledger, um, but I need these properties uh, from the smart contract language and these from the tools and these from you know, the application development itself. Um, and you get more of you know, like a traditional sort of web stack where you're, you're combining these different focus technologies to create something um, really, really you know, specifically suited to, to your company's uh, needs and skills. Um, so that's really happening. It's really underway at the moment. Um, you know, as, as before, it was really, should I choose Hyperledger Fabric or should I choose Corda or should I choose Ethereum? Um, now we're seeing the, the large technology providers. Uh, some of them were, were involved in the early days, but you know, over the last year, year and a half, uh, really there has been an influx of, of the sort of multinational uh, mega tech companies. Um, such as VMware uh, that we, we partnered with. Um, they are very much just focused on how do we build the best you know, blockchain ledger that, that we can, um, are then partnering with, you know, we're using and partnering with companies uh, for the smart contract piece. Um, and so what we at DA have done is chosen the focus just on that smart contract piece. Um, as as you know, building uh, and supporting uh, to the production levels the requirements of the types of clients in capital markets, uh, a, a highly distributed uh, blockchain piece of infrastructure, uh, really that's where the skill sets of, of the technology giants uh, really shine. Um, and then working on um, the sort of language design and how do we actually best encapsulate these these business concepts uh, into code without having to uh, to to confuse the the end users or the developers with too much of the underlying uh, system sort of configuration uh, is where most of our strengths lie. Um, so we sort of see that sort of natural layering um, of different parts of the stack, more choices, um, more combinations um, and then more focus from from different companies uh, uh, on those different layers I think has been been probably the the, the most major trend that, that we've seen recently and that's you know, bound to continue with the likes of Amazon and Microsoft and and Google and Oracle and VMware um, and now we have Facebook uh, and others uh, getting into this space as well okay and then Kelly Sure. Um, maybe I'll take a, a, a just add on to Dan's point, but again, come back to the the, um, the client side, which I which I know best. I think um, the 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 way the way I would sort of see it is, um, and maybe what I'll do is I'll tie it into some of the publicly known uh, implementations that are out there, so that um, the folks listening something they're reading about. Um, so I think the first thing is around being able to really focus on, on those areas where um, errors and waste can be reduced, where there's sort of unnecessary uses of, of balance sheet, as I mentioned earlier, where having a good golden source of data really adds value, not just simply for the company itself, but, but for their, their end clients overall. Um, uh, one of the firms that I think is approaching it from this angle is, is BNP out in Asia, who have announced a product to kind of harness um, some of the real-time golden source data that's going to exist uh, between a couple of the markets out there that are, are going into the, the uh, implementation stage 
of using these technologies to um, to run exchanges and market infrastructure organizations. So they're they're creating a way for for that that data to be used cross market in you know kind of the way global custody did, but back in the 70s. Now we're we're here decades later, and it's a, a different version of of the same thing in a really creative way. Um, then there's a, a focus, I think, on uh, for those organizations, particularly in the the capital markets to materially reduce risk and often the associated capital requirements that go with it to um, be able to enhance the, the monitoring of transactions and facilitate the compliance with, with regulatory uh, requirements on that. So in that case, I think of an organization like HKX, which was has been public um, about a prototype that they created for their northbound Stock Connect program, a program that existed but, but was hampered by a very tight settlement window, very operationally burdensome time that was often putting uh, the market participants into obligeable positions uh, when they were asleep. So uh, so this is a way for the, that technology to reduce the risk associated with that operating process by allowing a much more automated and shared workflow to, to brought in. And it's really kind of revolutionary for something that um, in, in a certain degree has actually existed. Um, then I think I'll go back to that straight through process uh, um, uh, comment that I made earlier. It's sort of breakthroughing those traditional internal boundaries to deliver enhanced SDP or SDPT plus, whatever your favorite word is, opportunity across internal counterparts. That's the UBS equity derivatives and structured products uh, example where that workflow really goes well beyond the, the borders of, of UBS and, and uh, begins to minimize the, co the operational effect on those that are transacting with them. And then the last one um, I'd say is around this, this notion I mentioned earlier about developing new products or services or driving industry innovation where it previously wouldn't have been uh, possible before. And I'm going to mention Broadridge and their, um, their public uh, work on a distributed ledger repo program. And you might think repurchase agreements for anyone who's listening, I mean, they've been around since the, the early 90s. What could possibly be new about that? But it's just that. Some of the systems and the technology that support those markets right now are still from the early 90s. So um, they've come at it in an entirely new way, not just simply to replace that functionality, but to create a new manu managed, mutualized uh, repo program that um, that I think will really begin to transform how repo is conducted and, and then managed across its life cycle with, um, with the counterparts. So those are some of the things that, that, that we see. Okay. And then just to kind of wrap it all up, like I said, you know, we wanted to focus more on the the topics that will be uh, long lasting on the kind of the day to day operations for firms, but obviously uh, the 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 results, uh, the the ripple effect of the coronavirus is uh, put put some strain on the, every industry across the globe, every country, every person, um, and it's going to last for a while, obviously. So, for you guys and the projects that you're working on. You know what? Are, how what are you doing to communicate with clients? You know you have both the you know the UBS. You kind of talked about the work with them. You have ASX. The work you do with them, many many other projects across the globe um, that you have, and each one having their own set of unique disruptions. How do those projects go? How how are you communicating with clients because? They also just need to worry about, well, they have their trading, their OEMS that they have to address and keep making sure that that thing's running. How do they kind of keep on pushing forward on these kind of projects toward the future versus uh, the kind of the day-to-day the -day stuff that, that just has to get done? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, Dan, if you're okay, I'll go first and uh, and then um, leave it to you to to make the closing comments. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, th I think this also, too, would have been a really good answer for one of your earlier questions about what sort of changed from, from when the market started around hype, where, um, you know, every solution needed to be a complete and total jettisoning of the existing functionality and uh, and put in something brand new. I think that, you know, we're we've returned to more of a, a, a normalcy or a, a reality and, um, it, and, a, and a practical approach to it. So all of the organizations that I've mentioned, to your point, they're actually providing related um, or very similar uh, uh, products and services right now to their existing clients. So they have to be, uh, be able to work with us in a creative and a um, constructive way including with them and their market participants. And I think that's probably the key point that, that I'll make, that um, what seems to be driving a big difference here is, um, is the involvement of the market participants in all of those cases that I mentioned and many more that we're not able to mention where the, the end users or the beneficial owners or um, the counterparts directly into the dialogue. And it's a much more iterative approach, which I think is, um, is uh, something that's... Uh, made even more possible with uh, smart contract technologies like DAML, but it, it's a much more iterative approach. And it, 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 because, it's, then, um, because there are technologies like DAML that can work really on any type of database or any type of um, persistence layer, it makes the ability to tackle a use case or a problem not to be a wholesale system shift, but rather something that you already know has priority coming from the market participants that are talking to you. So, I mean, it sounds not really different from many other types of, of technologies in the past in terms of process. And I think that's kind of the point. It's a return to some of those best practices that we knew about implementing large-scale technology changes, albeit now with a technology that enables you to do it much more fastly, much more productively, and with much more real-time ability to adjust um, and, and incorporate in practical market feedback hope to make money as a result of doing what you're doing okay and yeah dan uh wrap it up yeah i mean i'd just say sort of in, in in terms of my my you know i guess trying to be the try to be optimistic in terms of my hope of of what will come out of this obviously other than everyone being being safe and, and you know the economy being uh sound um you know i think a lot of that that hype will, you know, the, the real projects will start to shine as, as people start to focus really on 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 the business value, the business case that, that Kelly's been talking about, um, and some of the more sort of extraneous, maybe shiny, distracting uh, noise that's coming out of the space will will obviously get less funding, less attention, less less media hype, uh, and so you know, as this industry generally and the technology um, is you know, going through its its maturity period, uh, becoming mature, um, you know th those projects really shining through and people focusing uh, on where the real value is, and we can you know hopefully get to a point where you know blockchain is is boring and people don't necessarily talk about the word blockchain just as they no longer really refer to dot coms or or internet companies, uh, and we just start to talk about what people are actually doing, and uh, that just so happens to use it. Um, so I think we're, we're rapidly approaching that that point, um, and and we'll be a lot more focused and a lot less uh, noise and hype. 
as they say, uh, you know, smooth seas don't make for a skillful sailor. So, you know, <laughs> do, so to, hopefully, uh, you know, yeah, isn't show that who's the, the best. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, so Dan Kelly, thanks so much for joining. I know you guys are busy. Oh, thank you. It's really our pleasure. What a nice way to spend the afternoon. Thanks so much, Danny. Really enjoyed it. No problem.